Welcome to the Gordon Asset Management Podcast, a show for savers, investors, and entrepreneurs, helping you to stay informed, invest wisely, and achieve the unimaginable. Now, on to the show. Welcome to another edition of the Gordon Asset Management Podcast. This is your host, Todd Zempel, and riding shotgun today are Joe Gordon and JT Stilly. Uh, today, folks, we have a very special edition of the podcast. We have uh, a very special guest, uh, Brian Graff, who is CEO of the American Retirement Association. Uh, welcome, Brian, to the show. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate it. Glad to be here with all of you. Thanks. And so, Brian, for the folks who may not be familiar with the ARA, the American Retirement Association, can you tell a little bit about the organization and what you guys do? Absolutely. So um, American Retirement Association is really the national organization representing uh, professionals who work in the retirement plan field, helping uh, plan sponsors and participants with their plans and their retirement accounts. Uh, we've got uh, 35,000 members nationally across the country, uh, really representing all facets of the retirement plan practice. And and what we do is provide education through conferences and uh, through uh, credentialing programs to uh, retirement plan professionals throughout the country. And we also do quite a bit of advocacy work here in Washington, D.C., where uh, the American Retirement Association is based, trying to make sure that uh, Congress doesn't mess things up too badly when it comes to 401k plans, which trust me is a constant battle, uh, as well as uh, occasionally try to get some uh, positive changes made to make it easier for both employers and participants uh, to save for their future retirement. Excellent. Uh, you mentioned co- uh, Congress and changes. Um, you know, two two acts have passed recently, both this Cure Act and the CARES Act, in the past twelve months. Um, happy to hear your thoughts on either or of those, um, but more so looking forward. What are you seeing in the pipeline for twenty twenty one and beyond? I know PEPs are becoming a hot topic. Um, feel free to speak to that or anything else, but I'd uh, love to hear your thoughts. Well. Um you know, there continues to be a lot of focus and energy around retirement policy. It's um, with what would likely be a split government. And what I mean by that is assuming in Georgia, uh, Republicans managed to win one of those two seats, which most of the the folks in town here, you know, that's the way we're kind of assuming and operating, not that we always get things right. Frankly, oftentimes we're getting things wrong. But uh, hard to imagine that Democrats are going to sweep Georgia. So assuming Republicans control the Senate, um, you know, they're going to have to do, you know, they're going to want to do some stuff and it's going to have to be stuff that's bipartisan. And really, that's a pretty short list of things, unfortunately. And retirement is actually one of them. Uh, Historically, it's always been kind of uh, a considered a bipartisan issue, uh, really dating back decades, um, and I've been doing this for almost 30 years now. So the SECURE Act, for example, uh, last year uh, passed uh, the House of Representatives with over 400 votes, uh, as an example. Not much, like I said, uh, really gets ha- ha- really happens in this town 
truly on a bipartisan basis. So there's a short list of things. Infrastructure is probably another one, maybe a few others. And so the activity on retirement has already started. We had a hearing last week in the Senate on retirement policy. Um, and so I, I expect early consideration um, of some possible additional changes to the rules for retirement plans uh, being worked on in the House uh, as early as January, but certainly uh, according to the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee uh, by the first quarter. He, he gave a speech a couple of weeks ago where he said the two priorities for him out of the gate were infrastructure and retirement. So uh, we're, we're going to be busy. Um, you mentioned PEPs. Um, that's already been enacted. Um, they will. There is a provision in, in legislation that would expand them to 403B plans, too, which I expect will eventually happen. But the regulators still have a lot of work to do in terms of guidance so that, you know, firms like yours can implement the concept of a pool employer plan. And I, you know, having talked to some of the career staff at DOL since the election, um, I can tell you they're, you know, that's one of their top priorities. And so they're going to continue working on that regardless of when uh, a new, you know, the new political appointees are made, which will probably take a little while. Um, so PEP guidance will be a priority and it'll be interesting to see, you know, a lot of, there is a lot of buzz taught about PEPs. Uh, well, it'll be interesting to see how much that buzz turns into reality. So, Brian, this Joe, when, where you sit on the pooled employer plans, your personal opinion, what, what are the one or two really positive things that you like about them? And then what are the one or two uh, issues that are still unresolved that you think, you know, require some uh, subsequent uh, procedures or rules or regulations issued? No, I don't. I think it depends on where you're sitting in the marketplace. So if you're a, you know, if you're a bundle provider, um, you know, you've got some conflict issues. That's not something that you guys are going to be dealing with. So for you all, it's, I think it's less, there's really, there's really less issues other than, you know, what the, what the marketplace need is. I think there's two, there's two kind of aspects to this. I think there's, I think there'll be an interest among the smaller plans, micro plan, micro plan, um, you know, small businesses that uh, could see some some economies of scale, but also, you know, just going to like the fact that they don't have to file a 5,500 form. You know, that's going to be a selling point for that that audience. Um, and, you know, obviously the ability to, to, to um, outsource some of the, the liability issues will also be a consideration. And then on, if you go up market a little bit, I think there's going to be some interest among some of the mids, even maybe larger plans that might see the savings and audit cost as being pretty attractive, um, you know, because you're able to kind of pool that audit cost among a bunch of different employers. So, um, and then there's, you know, I mean, this is more of an industry issue, but um, I think there's a marketing element to this that I'm sure you guys have heard about where, you know, a lot of firms that really haven't had their name out there, uh, this is a way to, to kind of uh, create a better connection with your participant audience by uh, having a relationship that kind of leads very nicely, not just during the plan, but also beyond the plan uh, on the wealth side, 
uh, where you know it's the Gordon Asset Management 401k, and and that becomes more of a lifelong relationship as opposed to a temporal one. And I see so that. A, I see that driving in the conversations that I'm having with folks in the industry. That's driving um, uh, interest in the pooled employer plans, probably more than anything else. Got it. So, uh, and, and no informal survey I've done. I probably talked, this is Joe, talked about, I don't know, four or five providers on the record-keeping TPA side. And it and it seems that their position on uh, any potential conflict, if they're the uh, uh, record-keeper TPA and they uh, pick themselves to be the pooled plan provider, uh, I've seen different legal advice depending on the national law firms that are representing them on how they should posture. A couple don't have a problem with it and say they'll even act as 316 administrator. A couple are saying, no, we don't want to be 316. Uh, that they, the company has to decide to hire us as the pooled plan provider. So I, I see that potential conflict and, and I don't know how it's going to be resolved, but, um, uh, do you, do you see any, Brian, uh, going forward, uh, since this is a hot topic with the incoming administration, any debate about uh, mandatory contributions or taking away the pre-tax uh, effect of people choosing between Roth and pre-tax elective deferrals? So the, so the, the proposal that you're – the latter proposal is a proposal that was part of the uh, President-elect Biden's uh, platform that would uh, replace the 401k deduction with a tax credit, sort of, you know, flatten the the, the tax preference, the tax incentive. Um, it is not a new idea. Uh, it's been around. In fact, we as an organization testified about this proposal in 2010, uh, but it's really been around since, you know, 2010. Two, um, in any event, um, you know, going back to my original point about um, a split Congress, the Republican Senate's not going to have any appetite for any of that. So I do expect, you know, it will be in President Biden's budget proposal, but it's not really going anywhere. And, and Richie Neal is the chairman of Ways and Means Committee. He's a Democrat. In a conversation we had with him um, last month, didn't seem really enthusiastic about the proposal regardless. So I'm not, I'm not losing too much sleep about that. Now, if Democrats sweep the Senate, sweep the Georgia, excuse me, and then take over the Senate, that's, that changes things because then they can use something called budget reconciliation. Uh, if you're familiar with that, which allows them to pass pretty massive legislation without, uh, uh, going without the need to overcome a 60 vote point of order in the Senate. So there's, essentially no filibuster. Um, you know, that's how, for example, the Affordable Care Act got enacted. That's how the President Trump's Tax Cut and Jobs Act got enacted. It was all, you know, one party in control of everything. So, um, you know, whenever that happens, sometimes some mischief can happen. And, and that's when, you know, we'd be a little bit more worried about something like you're suggesting, um, you know, mandatory contributions, mandatory automatic enrollment, um, you know, changing the tax structure. Those bigger ideas tend to happen when one party's in control. But, um, you know, as I said, I think 
most everyone here, at least right now, is operating as if Republicans will pick up at least one of those seats. And so that um, the stuff that's going to happen is not going to be quite as dramatic. So so we're we're working more on ways to improve the system in its current form. Um, and a lot of these are, are tweaks. Some of these are bigger deals than others, like, you know, maybe a, an additional catch up contribution for people who are over age 60, like, you know, bump them up to a $10,000 catch up as opposed to uh, the current law catch up limit. Um, you know, there there's a bunch of other proposals to, you know, make it easier for uh, small smaller employers to adopt plans, take the the 50% tax credit that was passed in the SECURE Act and make it 100% tax credit. Um, make it easier for employers to provide matching contributions for student loan payments. Um, perhaps come up with a, a safe harbor for required minimum distributions. Like if you have up to $100,000, you'd be exempt and wouldn't have to deal with it unless you've got more than $100,000 in retirement savings. Things like, you know, those are the kinds of things that are, you know, as part of a package, more likely to happen. But I do think that there's quite some likelihood, given the the dearth of issues that are, quote, bipartisan, uh, that we could have some new legislative uh, proposals become enacted as early as next year at some point. Interesting. Uh, Brian, this is Todd. So when you're in D.C. battling swamp creatures over retirement plan uh, issues, and those are my words, not yours, just for the record, um, would you find that, generally speaking, the folks in D.C. understand a lot of the retirement issues? Or is there a large education process that needs to happen with these legislators? So, you know, think about how complicated <laughs> this stuff is for people that do it for a living. Um, and you can imagine how challenging it can be for both, you know, members of Congress and their staff. Some of them are, have done, a, you know, been working in the area for quite a, quite some time. So they're a little bit more familiar, you know, folks like Chairman Neal, Ways and Means Committee, who's been, you know, working on retirement policy for 25 years. Um, similar, Rob Portman. And Ben Cardin, to you know, a Republican and a Democrat in the Senate, who you know worked on legislation back in '96 that became the Safe Harbor 401ks, and they also worked on legislation that created the Simple Plan. So these guys have been doing it for a really long time. So you know that they're a level, you know, way, 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 way beyond the average member of Congress. Most members of Congress just have a I mean, I know what a 401k plan is. That's, we should be grateful for that. So, um, so whenever you're you're dealing with issues, you know, we have to spend quite a bit of time kind of educating folks. A good example right now is, you know, one of the proposals that we're pushing to get um, into the mix for next year is is repealing uh, a, a fairly significant part of fam the, the so-called family attribution rules. And these are these rules that say that if, you know, two people uh, have completely separate businesses, but they have a child, uh, they automatically have to kind of combine their plans for purposes of some 
complicated ERISA tests. And sometimes it really negatively impacts the ability of one of the businesses to offer a retirement plan. So that's a really, you know, dumb rule. And so, um, I mean, that, that applies, by the way, even if the people aren't married anymore, the family attribution rule still applies. So, um, you know, as you probably guess, those rules are complicated. So it takes some time to kind of explain the rule and then explain what needs to get, what the problem is, and then explain what needs to be fixed. And, you know, we've got like a dozen provisions like that <laughs> that we're working with staff and members of Congress on. So my team is very busy right now. So, Brian, obviously, it's a real challenge to get that word out and to spend the time, invest the time, but it obviously takes some money. So tell us about the Political Action Committee and has COVID impacted the ability to raise funds from the 35,000 plus professionals to be able to get that message to the appropriate people? And I, I well, let me first by apologizing, because apparently I, I said some things about members of Congress and the, the dog started howling. Um um so you know unfortunately the business of politics you know money is a is is not no surprise is a big part of of it and um you know and the, the funny thing about covid um you know the one thing that really almost didn't stop at all uh was fundraising somehow they managed to get to virtual fundraisers so fast um, and, you know, I, I often joke that, um, you know, there's no fun in fundraiser. Um, I guess a virtual fundraiser is a little bit better because they're shorter. Um, but they're really, nonetheless, extremely important because, you know, you're particularly, you know, whether it's the House or Senate, these guys are dealing with tons and tons of issues. You know, the, the the breadth of issues that they have to deal with on a daily basis is enormous. So the what I'd like to say is that the, the PAC really gives us the opportunity to tell our story, to sort of uh, just create awareness about things like stupid rules regarding, you know, people who have a kid. Um, and, and those kinds of opportunities really don't happen in the absence of the political side in the absence of having the money to go to a, to a fundraiser and in the absence of, of being able to get that one-on-one, you know, personal attention for, a, even if it's for a, a short period of time, uh, you know, and, you know, we do have a pretty good story to tell, um, which is good, you know, trying to promote retirement savings, trying to help employers offer plans, trying to help participants save for retirement. But the pack is really the key to kind of, uh, opening that door and allowing us that opportunity to tell that story. Other things, I mean, what's on your mind from from a, a future look perspective? I mean, you you mentioned some of the uh, proposals out there, the the uh, family aggregation rules, uh, things like that. Um, is there anything out there that you think would surprise a lot of the people who aren't really plugged into the in- industry that are being discussed behind the scenes? Yeah, I think that probably the, I mean. The biggest thing that uh, I kind of call it the headliner is, you know, like PEPs were kind of the headliner with the SECURE Act. Um, This bill could actually, depending on how things go, could have a much bigger headliner. And that headliner is some is a is really has to do with something that's in current law, but it's a real makeover for this thing in current law. And this thing I'm referring to is the savers credit. So some people are, you know, some employers 
uh, with a lot of uh, workers, uh, particularly in the service industries, who might be listening, uh, and some participants might be listening, might be familiar with it. But uh, what it does is provides a sort of a tax credit for lower income individuals to save in a retirement plan. Problem is it, it's, you know, it, it's relatively strict in terms of who's eligible. And then it's kind of has a cliff. If you make like a dollar more, you don't get anything. It's pretty harsh. Um, this is a complete change to that. Um, it would provide a credit of up to a 50% of up to $3,000 saved for families making up to $80,000 a year. And in fact, actually, it's phased out between 80 to 100,000. So you're talking about a, you know, more than 50% of the population would be now eligible for this. And here's the kicker that makes this really a game changer is it's not a tax credit in the traditional sense. It's a refundable credit. So the money would be going back in, the money would actually be contributed into the 401k account or IRA of the taxpayer. So in a way, this is really a government match. And that's a big deal. And for the average person out there, really a much bigger deal than a pooled employer plan. I would say so. I mean, if you don't let the employee touch the money, it's probably a great thing because it'll end up where it should be. So that's a real big idea that Ben Cardin in the Senate, that's his, that's his thing. He's convinced Rob Portman, a Republican, to get behind it. There was a hearing, as I said, I think I mentioned there was a hearing last week, um, last Tuesday, and this was a big part of that conversation. So when this legislation, even though there's expansion of the savers credit in the House bill, it's not refundable. If When it gets to the Senate, they're going to try to make it refundable. And what I mean by that is make it into a, a government matching program. And if that's the case, um, you know, it's a, that really becomes the headliner that I think, frankly, you'll start seeing the media talking about because it's a big deal. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Huge deal. Uh, so thanks for breaking that down for us. Um, Brian, uh, so if anybody listening to this podcast wants more information about you or the American Re- Retirement Association, uh, where can they go to find more information? So we've got an advocacy page, um, uh, two, two websites. You can either go to usaretirement.org or you can go to araadvocacy.org. Um so either one, you'll find, I think, a lot of great information about what's happening here in D.C. on retirement plans. And All the right. dog's super excited, too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so the, the joys of working from home. Uh, so, all right, Brian. Well, we very much appreciate you taking a few minutes to uh, meet with us today and, and talk about the uh, inner workings of what's going on in Washington, D.C. So uh, thanks a lot, folks. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to Brian, us uh, at WealthQB.com. Thanks a lot, folks. Appreciate it. And have a great one. 
information in this podcast is presented for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. Opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect those of Gordon Asset Management LLC, its producers, hosts, or guests. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation or solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risks. Neither Gordon Asset Management LLC nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.